Hey, hi, hello, welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. Our potential guest this week was a busy, busy guy, so we have so much to go over. Grab a drink and join the party. No matter, oh, that Hollywood party. Yes, Mrs. Granny, here's Miss Christmas. Not Okay, so he helped create Lon Chaney, Ramon Navarro, John Gilbert, Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, Jean Harlow, Robert Montgomery, I am not even done, Marie Dressler, Wallace Berry, and Garbo. He would never ever take credit for that because our guy once said, credit you give yourself isn't worth having, which is an extremely rare statement for someone to make, especially in Hollywood. Well, when you have an award named after you, you can say those kinds of things. Boy Wonder, Genius, Producer Prince, Irving Thalberg is who we'll be getting to know today. His parents were William and Henrietta Thalberg. William was a lace importer. They lived in a multi-room attic in Brooklyn, and that's where their first child, Irving Grant Thalberg, was born on May 30th, 1899. He was a blue baby with a congenial heart defect. That didn't stop Henrietta from pushing her son towards greatness. Years later, Irene Mayer Selznick commented, Henrietta got revenge against an ineffectual husband, actually life, through this boy. So yet again, another woman married to an unambitious man pushing her kid to succeed. I think I'm onto something here. I should really start keeping a tally. His sister Sylvia was born the next year, but Henrietta's focus was always on Irving. By age seven, she had a regime for his health. Sponge baths, rub downs, hot water bottles, enemas, super fun for a seven-year-old, and then forced rest periods. He did go to school, but any small cold could turn into something major for him. He excelled in English, but was bad at math. That's okay. Henrietta was a straight-up tiger mom. One day, he came home with a silver award in math, and she asked what silver meant. Second place, he said. She socked him in the arm. You could say Henrietta's motto in life was, if you're not first, you're last. She drilled him every single night until he improved, and of course, he got gold the next time. In 1916, the rheumatic fever put him in bed for a year, and he was unable to graduate high school. While he was laid up, he made five rules for himself. One, never hold an unassailable opinion. Two, the clearness with which I see my goal determines my speed in reaching it. Three, expect help from no one. Four, pride goeth before the fall, and the height of pride determines the severity of the bump. Five, never take any man's opinion as final. One day, Henrietta just bursts into his room and says, you've been sick long enough. I want you to make something of yourself. So our nerdy little dude goes out into the workforce. He's very mature, but he missed his teen years and didn't have a lot of social skills. We all know that kid. Real nice, dork, but none of this is his fault. He got a job being a part-time office clerk because he was an expert typist and he knew shorthand and Spanish. While at his grandmother's vacation house in Long Island, Henrietta told him to go next door and introduce himself to their neighbor, Carl Lemley, the founder of Universal Studios. He didn't get a job that day, but he did apply and become the assistant to Carl's secretary. Irving started making memos on how to improve office management and on films he was watching with his boss. Apparently, Carl loved the memo so much, he made Irving his secretary and doubled his salary. Carl, like most people in Hollywood, and everywhere it seems, really loved nepotism, and he hired practically everyone in his family to work for him. So when you hire people who don't have good taste or just want to crank out films or don't know what the hell they're doing, 
you don't get great movies. Irving thought the public deserved better than what Universal was churning out. So in the fall of 1919, Carl takes Irving to Hollywood to see the studio firsthand. This is Irving's first time away from New York and away from Mama. Frances Marion was the highest paid writer at Universal at the time. This was her first impression. I whiled away the hours talking to Carl's secretary, a young lad with a sensitive face, the dark searching eyes of the ambitious, and a frail body. He seemed so knowledgeable when he discussed any subject, from movies to art to philosophy, that assessing his future, I knew he would not remain a secretary for long. Carl returned to New York alone. Irving said this of his beginnings in Hollywood. In a business where no one has the courage of his own convictions, I knew I was right, that I should make them do it my way. It was one of those periods when people were getting fired left and right. I took charge because there was no one left to take charge. Who would have thought this frail little dude had the naz to just take the reins? Good for him. Carl came back in February of 1920 because all the execs were sending telegrams bitching about Irving changing everything. Well, Carl loved the changes, and he put Irving in total control of the studio, and then took off for a trip to Europe. Cool, well, Irving has to finish nine movies and does not have enough money to do that. So he goes down to speak with the president of the bank. He gets a loan, but can't even sign for it because he wasn't even 21 yet. Apparently back then, they didn't let kids just get into massive amounts of debt on their own. Irving started dating Carl's daughter, Rosabelle. I shouldn't have to say this, but of course Henrietta did not like her. Rosabelle wanted to be an actress, but she wasn't exactly photogenic. Plus, she didn't like Irving when he was just a secretary, and then when he got power, she was into him. I'm siding with Henrietta on this one. The way his mom put it was, if he married her, he'd be locked into Universal. He didn't really like the sound of that. Irving's first problem child at Universal was Eric von Stroheim. The budget for one of his pictures was $25,000, but von Stroheim ballooned that to $250,000. The next film von Stroheim did, he promised Irving he'd be a good boy and keep to the script and stay on budget. One of the very first scenes was a banquet that von Stroheim turned into an orgy with naked ladies and punch bowls, real champagne, and he used up 83,000 feet of film. He then had the distinction of being the very first director ever to be fired in Hollywood. It's a good thing he was fired because all of that money that was saved went into filming The Hunchback of Notre Dame. That movie was a big hit, and so Irving says, hey, can I have a raise? And Carl says, no, we can't do it because of operating expenses. Not, it's really because Irving wouldn't marry Rosabelle. So he starts asking around to other studios, would they like to hire him? When Irving met L.B. Mayer in 1922, he explained to him how he was saving money at Universal. He said that he started making story conferences until the script was then approved by producers, then they would start rolling. Irving started over at Mayer Pictures in February of 1923, where he became the VP of production at $500 a week, which is $8,000 in 2020 money. The studio needed more big stars, big time, so Irving suggested Norma Shearer. He had tried to get her while he was at Universal, but their New York representative had made advances on her. Great. So this time, she requested her mother come along with her for this meeting. LB and Irving ate that up because they were both mama's boys. Since Irving had been trying to get her for a while, she obviously got a contract with Mayer. So let me explain how MGM was born. In 1919, Sam Goldwyn buys the gigantic lot in Culver City for $325,000. He then spent $50,000 more to buy 30 more acres of land and then was forced out of his own company, but they kept his name. 
Marcus Lowe owned a chain of theaters. He bought Metro Pictures in 1920 for $3 million. Lowe then bought Mayer for $76,000 and Goldwyn for $4.7 million. At this time, it was only Metro Goldwyn. He did, however, put Mayer as the VP and general manager of the studio, and Irving was the VP of production. Again, Irving finally makes some pals. The dudes that took him under his wing were called the Three Jacks, actor John Gilbert, director Jack Conway, and playwright John Colton. They got Irving to get drunk and run around naked in a bungalow with some girls. Henrietta said, they're ruining my golden boy. It's the 1920s. Getting drunk and running around naked is almost obligatory. His first big affair is with a gal named Peggy Hopkins Joyce. It didn't last long because he wasn't rich enough for her. He kind of dodged a bullet with that one. She ended up getting married six times and was mentioned in a lot of songs because of that. Think of like the Kardashians, little talent except for getting her name in the papers. He then moved on to Constant Talmadge. She had her own production company, was worldly and super fun. Irving had it pretty bad for her, but she broke it off because she needed someone more exciting. Norma is just hanging around Irving's office. He thinks it's because she's friends with a secretary who said this. Norma Shearer was determined to get Irving from the first day she walked into our studio on Mission Road and saw him. She used to sit in my office pretending to talk to me but actually waiting to see him and be seen by him when he came in. Von Stroheim is back, baby, because he was contracted with Goldwyn and was filming a movie called Greed, which he insisted on doing in Death Valley in 142 degree heat. Everybody gets heat stroke. His budget explodes to half a million dollars. He filmed 42 reels of film, and that ended up being seven hours long. Irving trimmed it down to two hours, and the movie only made 247,000 bucks. After Greed, Von Stroheim does The Merry Widow and shoots a ton of dirty scenes, like especially of an old dude kissing feet. Irving calls him out and is like, what is this? The old man has a foot fetish, says Von Stroheim, and you, sir, have a footage fetish. Irving gets a tip of the hat for that comeback. That is spot on. While this mess is going on in Hollywood, in Italy, they're filming Ben-Hur, which blew through their $1.25 million budget in two months. The cast and crew get called back to Hollywood, and they build a set on Venice Boulevard in La Cienega to reshoot the chariot scene. Everybody in Hollywood helped out to be extras for that scene. Mary Pickford, Joan Crawford, Gable. That wasn't even enough, so they got bums off of Skid Row to put on some togas. There were 42 cameras used to film that race. People and animals were hurt. I don't want to bum you out, but uh, not great. So this was shot in October. The movie needed to be done in the can by Christmas. So the pressure that was already there is really on. Irving said every great film must have one great scene. So he is like busting his ass to get the editing done exactly the way he wants it. So of course, this is the perfect time to have a heart attack. He had personally supervised 17 of the 25 films made that year, and he was a story editor for every single production on the lot. Irving was aware of his heart condition, and he knew from an early age that he was not expected to make it to 30. Some people with that knowledge would live a safe, boring life. His theme song should be Some People from Gypsy. You know, the one that's like, some people sit on their butts, got the dream, but not the guts. Oh no, I'm gonna start singing. Okay, it's just a song about not being okay with being sedentary. Irving decided to cram as much as he possibly could into the time he had. Initially, the doctors told him he had a 50-50 survival rate after the heart attack, but then he really improved. Rushes of Ben-Hur were projected on the ceiling in his room, and the cutter sat there with him, working next to his sickbed. Obviously, he did not attend the premiere in New York, but he got a nice fat raise, 
and was featured in the New York Times. The heart attack slowed him down just enough to decrease his workload by two films. 1926 is the year we finally get MGM. Mayer finally wrangled his last name on there. The studio was getting big stars to sign as well. Greta Garbo and Lillian Gish were really big gets for the time. Marianne Davies was already on the lot and she brought with her guaranteed positive press from the Hearst papers. Norma is playing the long game. Whenever Irving needed a last minute date, she'd be there, ready, no complaints. And it paid off because in August of 1927, Irving proposed at the Coconut Grove. He said to the secretary, well, you never thought I'd get her, did ya? Uh, yeah, buddy. I never thought you'd land the girl who hung around the office just to see you. As for the engagement ring, she goes to visit Irving later that week, and there is a tray of diamond rings for her to choose from. Baller! Their wedding was on September 27, 1927, at the Pauline Frederick Mansion. Irving was renting it at the time for his family. Doesn't really matter who Pauline was, but the mansion is still there. Family that owned the Palm Juice Company? It's that juice bottle that looks like a butt plug? It, it does. They live there. After the wedding, the newlyweds continue to live there with Irving's parents for five months. And Henrietta made them sleep in different bedrooms because of Irving's heart. Right before they took a belated European honeymoon, the jazz singer comes out. Irving thinks it's just a fad, but by the time they get back from Europe, sound was a big issue. Obviously, many in the film colony did not want to believe it. Hunt Stromberg said, Tits and sand sell tickets. Who needs sound? Irving has to figure all of this sound business out on his own, because Mayer was in Washington, D.C. kissing Herbert Hoover's ass. It's truly annoying how absentee Mayer is. I will liken Irving's experience during this time to a group project. I hated them in high school because I had to do all of the work and the other group members showed up on presentation day going, didn't we do a great job? We? The royal we? Who the hell is this we you're talking about? That was Mayer, showing up to take all of the credit and doing no work. I ended up having to wear a heart monitor my senior year because of group projects, so I really feel for Irving because he has already had a heart attack because of this. Let's freshen up our drinks, shall we? An interesting movie that Thalberg does during this time is called Hallelujah. It's the first all-black movie, well, the cast at least. It's still 1929, so don't get crazy. Everyone told Irving not to do it. King Vidor was the director, and he believed in it so much that he put his entire salary towards the picture. Obviously, white theaters in the Midwest got kind of shitty about it, and that's their bad because the music was all from Irving Berlin. The rivalry between Joan and Norma is really brewing. I'm not trying to sensationalize it. People love to talk about the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford feud, but before there was whatever happened to Baby Jane, there was the women. But we're not even there yet, that's like 10 years away. By the way, where's a miniseries for that? Feud the prequel, come on. 40 years later, Joan said this. Certainly Norma had the advantage. Anytime an actress sleeps with the producer, she's bound to have an advantage. Sex is a very potent weapon. I have to say, I initially pegged Norma as a social climber, like Joan. I mean, had Joan met Irving first, she probably would have tried to marry him for sure. But Norma really did care for Irving, they seemed really sweet together. Besides, could you see Joan Crawford living with in-laws for five months? Norma wanted the vampy roles that Joan was getting, and Irving didn't really see her in that light, so Norma got someone to put her in that light. She hired George Hurrell to do 60 beautiful photos of her, convincing Irving, and it also got George a job at MGM. For that very role, Norma won her Oscar, and I guess the photos worked too well because she ended up getting pregnant. Although she says she got pregnant to get out of her mother-in-law's house. 
Either way, Irving Jr. was born in August of 1929, and she got her new house too, 707 Oceanfront. It is still there, and it is available for rent this summer at $60,000 a month. Any takers? Irving is well aware who was driving the movie industry. Women. 75% of the audience was female. Wives and shop girls can always get their men to see the movies they want to see, said Irving, but a man can never get a woman to see one that doesn't interest her. MGM had a problem. They had plenty of female stars, but they needed more male stars. Francis Marion liked a guy named Clark Gable. Irving said he had bat ears. But at a preview of The Easiest Way, which Gable had a supporting role in, people left the film wanting to know more about old bat ears. Then when the movie was released, they got a flood of fan mail. Irving told Marion he was wrong about Gable. Clark's big breakout was in A Free Soul with Norma. Mayer asked Irving why Clark was being cast in pictures with Norma, Garbo, and Joan. If you were ever here, LB, you'd know these things. Wherever I am, Irving, I'm the head of the studios. Don't I know it, says Irving. During the Depression, Irving did make a few missteps. Joan Crawford starred in a movie called Letty Linton. This is the movie where she had the dress with the gigantic white ruffled sleeves. Originally, it was a play called Dishonored Lady, but the Hayes Code blocked them from using that script, so Irving thought he would be slick and bought the book it was based on, Letty Linton, and had the screenwriters basically write up the script for Dishonored Lady. Well, he got sued for plagiarism, and the movie had to be pulled, and then MGM had to pay a fine of $100,000. Irving had saved Universal by starting them in the horror picture business, he told his writers to cook him up something even more horrible than Frankenstein. If it's a mistake, I'll take the blame. During the preview of this film, people ran out of the theaters, and some of them even yacked while they were watching it. Today, Freaks is a cult classic, and it's even on the National Film Registry, but 88 years ago, it was a box office bomb. And after that, he got knocked for not staying true to history with Rasputin and the Empress, he had to pay $700,000 for libel to some Russian prince whose name I can't even pronounce. Because of this event, that is why there are now disclaimers before the movies that say, the events and characters in this film are fictional and any resemblance to characters living or dead is purely coincidental. Oh, and then he didn't pay enough taxes, so the IRS is on his ass. Now we are going to take a gigantic detour right now. One of Irving's pals was involved in the biggest mystery of 1930s Hollywood, so it needs to be discussed. Besides that, it's just a damn juicy story. But we will bring it right back to our golden boy, no worries. Irving had made friends with one of his producers, Paul Byrne. He was a very well-read, nerdy guy. He worked on Irving to buy Gene Harlow's contract from Howard Hughes. Irving told him he was behaving like he had with Norma in the early days. Howard Strickling explained Paul this way. Byrne loved to take out sexy broads, but it wasn't enough for them to be gorgeous dishes. They had to be in trouble. John Gilbert said he had a Magdalene complex. Paul does crazy things for whores. In the 1920s, he was madly in love with Barbara Lamar, who was dubbed the girl who was too beautiful. He proposed, she turned him down. So he did the rational thing and tried to drown himself in the toilet. Well, he got stuck and Irving had to help him get unstuck. Paul and Jean Harlow married July 2nd, 1932. Irving was there even though he wasn't totally for the marriage. Jean was publicized as a bombshell and was just happy that Paul loved her for more than just sex. Later that month, Paul starts mentioning suicide to random people. Then he started belittling Jean in front of others at some parties. And then he even started smacking her around. 
On Sunday, September 4th, Jean comes home and she sees a limo parked in the front of her house. Inside is Paul Byrne and Dorothy Millette, Paul's common-law wife that Jean didn't know about. Paul had met Dorothy in 1920. His mother was a domineering Jewish lady who told Paul if she married that Gentile, she'd kill herself. Well, before Paul could even do anything, his mom drowned herself. So he moved into the Algonquin Hotel with Dorothy. Why not? Mom's not there to bitch anymore. And then Dorothy has a nervous breakdown. So Paul puts her in a sanitarium and then leaves for Hollywood. Clearly, he's told no one about this, but he is living in fear that the studio will find out about her or that she'll go to the papers and expose him or she'd just show up unannounced. Which brings us back to September 4th. Jean must have been channeling one of the characters she played on screen because she yelled out, when you find out who you're married to, let me know, slammed the door and she went off to her mother's house. The next morning, an unknown woman returned to the house. She sees an apology note in the guest book next to a gun. This lady turns to see Byrne, naked, in the dressing room, with another gun. Howard Strickling, our dude from Carol Lombard's last plane trip, gets a call, and a lady is hysterical on the other line. Paul just killed himself. Irving was hosting a Labor Day brunch when he gets a call from Mrs. Mayer. When he heard about his friend's death, he slumped over in a chair, and Norma thought he had a seizure. Irving, Norma, and David O. Selznick all drive to the crime scene. When they arrive, the head of MGM security is there. A studio photographer plus three of Byrne's servants are waiting. Apparently, a maid went in to give him breakfast at 11.30, found him, she fainted, and then was found by another servant who called the head of security instead of the cops. Upstairs is Mayer and Strickling, and they're arguing over a potential suicide note. Mayer wanted to destroy it. He already had it in his pocket. But Strickling was like, leave it alone, leave it right there. One hour later, the cops are called because rigor mortis is already setting in, and that normally begins about two to six hours after death. Irving and Norma drove to Jean's mother's house to break the news to her. How did they know she was there? Did no one else show up to the Byrne household and think, hmm, where's Jean? The next day, Mayer has a huge meeting with everyone involved, and he coaches them to say it was a suicide because Paul was impotent. Irving really hated that idea, but he was overruled. The autopsy said Paul was, quote, developed normally, but undersized. So in other words, he had a micropene. Conrad Nagel gave the eulogy, and he even denied suicide during that speech. Irving was a sobbing mess at the funeral, and Mayer was a real asshole to Jean, and offered her part in Red Dust to Tallulah Bankhead, who told Mayer it was distasteful to even ask her to replace Jean. By September 11th, Jean was back to work just to keep her mind off of everything. And you might be wondering, where's that common-law wife, Dorothy? Well, on September 14th, she showed up dead in the Sacramento River. I watch way too much Law & Order to be convinced that this was a suicide. You've got two pissed-off wives involved, 10 people at the crime scene for hours just dicking around with evidence before the cops are even called. Also, where is this movie? There is no proof of what happened. This would be a great thriller. Come on, I don't need more Marvel movies. I need this. Anyways, what do you think happened? After Paul died, Irving really started taking stock of his own life. He is way over this group project mentality of Mayer. What's it all for, Irving asked a friend. Why the hell am I killing myself just so Mayer and Schneck can get rich and fat? He told Mayer he wanted out of his contract and to leave for one year to decide what he wanted to do. There was a series of meetings with Mayer and Schneck. Irving said, I'm not going to work myself to death. Schneck said, fine, I'll sue you for breach of contract. 
Irving literally laughed in his face. Right after this, Fortune magazine put out a piece saying, Irving is what Hollywood means by MGM. Woohoo! Mayer was lit up. Then Irving had another heart attack. Mayer tried to see Irving twice in the days following this attack and Norma shut it down. As a matter of fact, she didn't even let Henrietta come in to see Irving, just the doctors. So Mayer does a power grab because that's what you do when your partner's ill, right? What a dick. He replaced Irving with David Oselsnick, who apparently hated being at MGM because everyone thought he only got the job because of nepotism, not because he was actually talented, which he totally was. When Norma finally let Mayer into the house, he told Irving he had been replaced, and Irving literally chased Mayer out the front door. The Thalborgs went to Europe just to get away, and when they return, Irving tells Snack, I will only come back to MGM if I can keep doing big budget important pictures, and if I don't have to report to Mayer. In the middle of all this mess, one good thing did happen. They had a daughter, Catherine, who was born in June of 1935. Irving is still not slowing down. He had a super busy work schedule, but his social calendar was nuts. Wednesday night was dinner with his mom. Thursday night was bridge night at his house. Remember, Chico Marx was in that group. And on Sundays, he and Norma threw big dinner parties. Damn, Sundays were popping back then. George Cukor and Cole Porter's party days were Sundays as well. In addition to those scheduled nights, he went to over 40 social events in 1936. Marion Davies said, Irving loved parties. It was his way of relaxing. In 1936, he starts his pet project, Romeo and Juliet. He asked Gable to be in the movie with Norma. Gable said, I don't look Shakespeare, I don't talk Shakespeare, I don't like Shakespeare, and I won't do Shakespeare. So, instead, they get 42-year-old Leslie Howard to play 16-year-old Romeo. Irving said he wanted everything authentic, uh, except for the actors' ages, apparently. This is the one and only time Irving loses objectability. The budget was 800000 and it went up to $2.9 million. Because of that, the film totally lost money. Even though tons of people went to see it, like teachers would bring their entire theater class to come see the movie. Our dude Walter Winchell is stirring shit up again. He reports that Norma has left Irving. Irving was so upset, he called Winchell and bawled him out. Norma was a wonderful wife, and he didn't want to hear any nonsense from that D-bag. It upset him so much, it made him feel sick. In the middle of that nonsense, he had to help clear up George Cukor's arrest. Yeah, the one he never spoke about, that one. So after that, he, Norma, and a group of friends fly up to Monterey to celebrate their ninth wedding anniversary, and it's Labor Day, so why not get away? After a day of playing golf with Chico Marx and a few other fellows that joined them, Irving started getting a cold. It was so bad that he didn't return to work on Tuesday, but he did go to the Hollywood Bowl where he was helping with a production of Everyman. That is a story about death telling an average, everyday man that his time is up. This kind of foreshadowing is almost too on the nose, but it is true. His cold morphed into strep throat, then into lumbar pneumonia. Norma is really worried that a coughing attack could cause a heart attack, so she doesn't allow him to speak. He did whisper to her that he wasn't getting the proper treatment and told her the doctors were killing him because they didn't know what they were doing. He made it through the night, and the next morning he told her not to let the children forget about him before slipping into a coma. He died at 10.16 a.m. The funeral was held on September 16th. When they interned him in the crypt at Forest Lawn Glendale, it is for sure marked, Henrietta fainted. Two weeks after burying her husband, Norma got pneumonia so bad that her lawyer came with her will. 
her lawyer also happened to be Mayer's lawyer, and he was trying to screw her out of getting a bunch of Irving stocks. I don't really understand the stock market, but he was trying to keep a lot of money from her. So when she made a full recovery, she fired him, went on to Luella Parsons' radio show, and put MGM and Mayer on blast for not respecting Irving's memory and disrespecting her. Selznick agreed with Norma, and he decided to screw with his father-in-law and MGM by saying Norma was the frontrunner for Scarlett O'Hara. The last movie Irving had planned for Norma was Marie Antoinette. Of course, Mayer did not give her the director she wanted, nor did he shoot it in color like Irving would have wanted. Doesn't matter, she was still nominated for an Oscar, even though she lost it to Betty Davis for Jezebel. In 1938, the Thalberg Building was dedicated on the Metro lot, and the Thalberg Award was created. It's not given every year, it's only when producers have consistently high-quality work. The first recipient was Daryl F. Zanuck. After dating around for a while, Norma remarried in 1942 to a man named Martin. They were married for the rest of her life. She tried to write an autobiography, but refused to discuss Irving's death, his or her issues with Mayer, so it just wasn't a very juicy read. Towards the end of her life, she had Alzheimer's, and she would ask for Irving quite often. She died in 1983, and was placed in the crypt right next to Irving. Irving Jr. became a professor of philosophy and a published poet, and he passed away in 1987. Their daughter Catherine ran a bookstore and the first vegan restaurant in Aspen, Colorado. She passed away in 2006. Norma's husband remarried, and a lot of Irving's papers were just flung out by his new wife. Thanks, lady. That's real great. So, is Irving coming to our party? Hell to the yes. He seems like the least douchey of all the studio bigwigs. Actually, that kind of sounds like a slam. I love Irving. He is the best example of seize the day that I have ever seen. If you love Irving now, like I do, I want to mention a brand new book called The Heart of the Lion by Martin Turnbull. It's the first time Irving has had a novel done about him since F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that dude didn't even finish writing the book because he died. This is not a paid ad. I just know there's not a lot of quality products for us old Hollywood lovers. And I genuinely enjoyed getting to spend more time with Irving. So from now on, if I find anything good, I'm just going to share it. Martin also has a fantastic series out that's set in one of our party locations, the Garden of Allah. He also did kind of like a prequel to the series about the landlady, Madame Ala Nazimova. I will put a link in the details of this party below so you can easily find all of his books. I know you'll all become addicts to his books just like I am, so you're welcome. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or whatever you use to listen. See you next week. That's noisy,